with chapter 23, Joshua 23, farewell address. As uh, Joshua now is older, we see that uh, he's old and stricken in age, as uh, says twice in this passage. But, um, you know, as I look back on great men, I think of Washington as his farewell address. Well, he, and he was speaking to many of his soldiers who had come. And uh, they hadn't been paid for quite a while. Uh, and this was after the Revolutionary War and before his presidency even. But he was dismissing them. And uh, really, there was almost an insurrection, if you want to call it that, back then, because these, you know, Congress had promised a lot of soldiers, you know, giving their lives for the country, and yet they couldn't pay them. And uh, by the time he left uh, there, talking to his, his officers and some of his uh, the regulars, uh, there was they, it was said that there wasn't a dry eye in the in the audience, and so he averted a great problem that the country was going to have at the very at, at its very beginning. I think of other great leaders. I uh, think of Eisenhower. Eisenhower gave his farewell address as a president, as both the commander of the you know, World War II Armed Forces, but then as president. And one of the things people remember about him was some of the warnings he gave of what he saw about the country. Now, he was a military man and, of course, a great general and the president. But he said we got, he warned people about the military-industrial complex and how that uh, things were going to— and that's one of the terms that people remember from that. And unfortunately, he's been proven true. We got uh, so many— um, uh, lobbyists and so forth that come from the military and so forth and so much wasteful spending and yet uh, a needful spending. So it's one of those things where you don't know who's friend or uh, just a moneymaker. And so that's been true. And so we see that many times that um, uh, that the farewell address can be both a sayonara or, a, you know, see, a, it's good to be with you, but also a warning for the future. And this is what we see with Joshua. He goes back and he goes back through the, uh, through the history of Israel. And then he talks about um, the warnings of the future. And so we begin in chapter 23 of the book of Joshua. And it came to pass after a long time. How long, long was a long time? Those people who worked the numbers, and I won't bore you with all the different passages that you can go to to figure out possibly the, about they're saying 20 to 25 years. So by this time, Joshua is up close to 95, to, is anywhere from 95 to 110 years old. And of course, we know that was about, uh, Mo uh, Moses died at 120. So this was the, the life expectancy is coming down quite a bit as uh, we go on in Scripture. By the time we get to David, it's down to 70. It's been hanging around there for the last, what, uh, several millennia. But um, we see that it came to pass after a long time, after the Lord had given rest to Israel, from all their enemies around about that Joshua was advanced in age. And Joshua called all of Israel for the elders. And notice he's getting all the heads and the judges and the officers and said to them. So he had a big confab before he had a, another big confab. That actually there's two stages here. So he calls them together. He said, I'm advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all the nations before you. So no, he's going to... He gives a very brief overview of history. He's going to do this twice. And so we see that uh, he says, uh, how the Lord your God fought for you. 
And so he's not taking credit. It was the Lord your God who did this. Um, and he who fought for you. See, I've divided the, um, uh, the, um, the, to you by lot these that remain to the inheritance of your tribes. And so he goes through all the things that God had done and how the, uh, brings them up to the present and just kind of reminds him of what God has done. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight so you shall possess the land. So notice he keeps the, all the way through both these um, these uh, addresses. He's always giving God, God the credit. And so it's interesting how that we see he doesn't take credit for himself. And uh, he says, therefore, now there's three things he tells them that they got to be, be careful to do. First of all, this is your mission. Mission statement, here we go. Verse um, 6, Therefore, be very courageous and keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. So first of all, keep your focus on the word of God. Keep your focus on what God has told you to do. That's your mission. Now, if you do that, then you're going to be blessed. So he says, lest you turn aside and uh, to the right hand or to the left, unless you go among the nations and you're going to become like them. Basically, is what he's saying. If you don't consciously and with effort strive to be like, your fa- like God, then you're going to be like the nations. So, choose, you know, so there again, you're going to have to decide not to turn to the right or to the left, but keep your eye on the job that God's called you to do. Um, and you shall not make any mention of that. You don't even talk about these other gods. You don't compare the Lord with them. So don't even mention, don't even bring their, their lingo into your house because they're going to draw you away. And so then he says the second thing um, in, verse, um, in verse 8, he says at the end of verse 8, he says, but you shall hold fast, the word cleave there in the King James, uh, to your Lord as you have done to this day. So you're going to have to not only... Uh, you're going to focus, but you're going to have to hang on. You're going to have to put some real effort into it. This is not something that's going to come easily. I like um, back a few years ago when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of England. Uh, she had a, uh, a, an assistant or one of her, whatever they call one of her aides. But he was talking and they gave some great advice. He said, unless we're always striving for our ideals then our foes will, uh, then our people, the, 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 let's see how you put it, if we don't striving and promoting our ideals, then the ideals of others will overtake us. In other words, if we're not always saying, hey, God's good, God is best, you know, and this is the way we should go. And if we're not always going forward for that, then we're going to start assuming the ideals of others. And isn't that true? I mean... You know, God shed his uh, grace on us. You know, America the beautiful. We sing all those songs. Those were our ideals. But when's the last time you really heard anybody sing that with pride? When's the last time we talked about uh, home of the free, and, uh, let's see, home of the brave, or, you know, land of the free, home of the brave. And all these things, that these were our ideals. And these were things that people would soar and say, this is what we believe. Even though we got problems, this is what we believe. These were the things where we were willing to seek for. 
We saw, the last time we saw that was in the 1980s. But now, you know, it's the popular thing to bow the knee or whatever else that the flag raises. I mean, some of the, some of the um, star-spangled banners today are just as atrocious as, I mean, I get a little tired of some of the stuff that I hear that is uh, an excuse for the star-spangled banner, even the way they sing that, because we're adopting so much of the culture of, the, of, of things that want to destroy us. And now we got two of national anthems and all the rest. No, we're not striving for an ideal as a nation. You know, uh, God shed his grace on us. So that, hey, let's not talk about God anymore. And so you can see how that our ideals as a nation, as a church. Is Jesus the sweetest thing I know, the sweetest name I know? Can I count my many blessings? Can, is God's grace sufficient for all my sins? Is that really true? Or is, wait a minute, the world's got some good stuff out there. Do we adopt what the world has to say? And we see that churches are. We've got to become, uh, we've got to be very culturally adaptable or whatever. Well, no, the church, we've, as we saw in Sunday school, in both Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians, they, they changed the culture of the world. But now the world is changing the culture of the church. Why? Because we're intimidated about our ideals. We've got to cleave to, folks, is the Lord the best? I mean, is he really worth living for? Is he better than anything else? Is Jesus the sweetest name we know? And so we see that. He said, you've got to cleave to this, folks. You've got to realize you've got a superior culture. You've got a superior God. You've got a superior lifestyle, everything. You don't want these things from other people. Now, you want to love them, and you want to, you know, you're going to, uh, there are certain things you're going to have to adapt. But overall, there are just certain things you don't want to allow even into your thinking. I don't want to think about how that, um, uh, I mean, if I was living back in the times of the Colossians, as we talked about Sunday school this morning, I, I want to keep my mind off of what goes on in the temple after what we described on there, right? I don't want to think about what goes on there because it's going to tempt me. I don't want to be attracted to it. I want it to be something that is degrading in my mind. If not, then I'm going to start being attracted to it. And, it, and we will. You know, and we see that true in everything that we do. So don't let these gods, with all their immorality and all the things that are surrounding, don't let those things be attractive. So you've got to keep your mind straight. You've got to keep holding fast to the Lord. And... Um, so the second thing, so first of all, we see that we're to obey and do. We're to cleave to them and really promote it in our lives. We've got to convince ourselves daily that he's the right way, that God is the right way. He is the light of my path. And then verse 8, uh, verse eight we see he says, hold fast. And then he goes on. And in verse 10, he says, one man of you shall chase a thousand, for, God, for your God is he who fights for you. As he promised you, therefore, take careful heed, guard. So we see that he says, obey, hold fast, focus, and guard it. I mean, you got to, I mean, you're going forward, you're looking, you're for focusing, but you are walking circumspectly as wise and not as fools. So as you promote in life, you just guard your path. You uh, make wise decisions that you may love the Lord your God or else if you indeed go back, notice if you start falling back and cling to the remnant of these nations, then 
they that remain among you. Notice they haven't driven them all yet out yet, and it's been now a couple of decades, and this is something Joshua realizes. He's told them, you know, you need to, now that the major battles are over, you need to do the mopping up, and they haven't done it, and he sees the danger. And so he says, these nations among you, uh, if you make marriages with them, and go in uh, to them, as they do to you, in other words, if you start adapting their culture and uh, intermarriage and all the rest, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out the nations. You're not going to have victories anymore. But to notice there's four things. In ver- he says, but they shall be snares. They're going to they're capture you. They're going to be traps. They're going to trip you up. They're going to be scourges. They're going to really hurt you. And they're going to be thorns in your eyes. It's a pretty bad place to have a thorn, isn't it? So he says there are going to be snares, there are going to be traps, there are going to be scourges, there are going to be thorns. I mean, if you don't, if you don't go after them, they're going to come after you. Isn't that true with Satan? And he always looks for an opening. He looks for a way to conquer. He's looking about whom he may destroy. You've got to realize there's still enemies out there. That we're not living in the, on the flowery beds of ease, and we're not in heaven yet. This old world's not our home. And so we've got to learn how to walk with the Lord. And this is what you've got to do, and you've got to keep driving out those Canaanites. You've got to keep mopping up in your own life. You've got to make sure that uh, they, these things don't become attractive to you. But you hate them, and you keep wanting to work them out. And so, and so this was his advice. Now notice as he goes on, verse uh, 14, he says, Behold, this day I stand, uh, I go the way of the earth. That's a way of saying I'm dying. And you know in all your hearts and all your souls, not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God, uh, um, which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. You know God's been faithful. Notice how he's reminding him. Of what God's done. Now look what God, you know, very briefly, he's brought you into the land, he's given you victory, and not one thing that he promised to to Moses and to you and to me has ever gone wrong. God keeps his promises, does he not? Does God keep his promises? Not one thing that God tells you is, will God ever lie to you? Therefore, he says, um, and all, and all have come to pass, not one word. I like that. I underlined that. Not one word of them has failed. God's word is perfect. And whatever he says is so. God has spoken, as we saw this morning. Therefore, it shall come to pass that all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you the harmful things. Now, we love the promises of God, right? But there's two sides of his promises. That, you know, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. And that's a promise of, of, of course, sin. But, of course, everlasting life is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, God is not mocked. For whatsoever we sow, we shall, what? Reap. So we have to be careful. Sin does have its consequences, although there is forgiveness. But, oh, my, there's so many, you know, there again is we want to make sure that we keep short accounts of the Lord, with the Lord. And so again, he says, be careful. These harmful things can destroy you. So keep on going. You've still got some things to work on. And by the way, folks, we'll always have some Canaanite in our life to drive out. 
all the way to the time we see the Lord Jesus. I love the Apostle Paul, but he scares me too. Because what a great man outside of the Lord Jesus Christ has probably never been a better Christian. Now, there might have been some Old Testament prophets, but nobody since the Lord Jesus, or John the Baptist, as the Lord said John the Baptist was, but he died before the Lord Jesus. But, uh, you know, he said uh, there's that uh, in me dwells no good thing. Now, wait a minute, Paul. He says, uh, uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, not was chief. And that scares me. If the Apostle Paul thinks of himself as that, knowing that he's got uh, Canaanites to drive out, what about me? So there's always something to draw. There's always something to work on, isn't there? Something to work on in our lives. And if not, then uh, you know the Lord Holy Spirit will uh, will respond. But that's why we want to respond to it. That's the reason we want to uh, to to be very sensitive to the Lord. Because we have old sinful flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So I want to promote the spirit. I want to feed the spirit. I want to make sure that he has his will. Am I always successful? No. That's what scares me. But if I, as we saw in Psalm 119, I don't want iniquity to have sway over me. I don't want it to to control me. So that means I've got to keep my thought life right. I've got to con- constantly work on things. Something came up that last night. I, and as I was studying all this, uh, different passages, and all of a sudden I was thinking the wrong thoughts. Yeah, it was, I forget, some react, uh, it was about a negative reaction I had towards something. And wait, wait, I can't even go there because, you know, that's been forgiven. That's in the past as far as the person is concerned, whatever. I <laughs> but there again, um, and so as a result, I don't even want to think about the things that God has forgiven. Do I? I don't want to think about the people that I've had to forgive. I mean, I don't want to think about the forgiveness again. I want to, I want to love them and pray for them. Uh, or I don't want to think about, you know, really, even in guilt. When you get, when you get guilty about uh, things you've done in the past and you think about them too much, guess what? You start thinking about the things that you did and that old flesh has a way of, of attracting you to it again. Isn't that amazing how that is? That we can, you, guilt can bring us back to wanting to, 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 repeat, to repeat the things that cause us to guilt. I mean, we, this, old my, this old heart of ours is desperately wicked, isn't aren't they? Our hearts are. And so there again, don't even think about those things. Keep your mind on the Lord. Keep your mind on driving, driving things out. But thanks be to God, which give us the victory. That's one thing that kept Paul going, is I got to keep going. I haven't attained it yet. I press toward the mark of the, uh, the, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So um, this, this, is, uh, this is the way of life. There, it's never going to end until we see the Lord Jesus face to face. And so he, he tells these men this, and this was, these were the leaders. That was his preliminary farewell address. But now we see that he goes to Shechem. And Shechem was, and it has an interesting history. We see it all the way back in the days of, of Jacob. And Jacob's well was there and so forth. This was a, um, a place where, um, of course, even the Lord Jesus met um, the woman the um, the woman at the well, I guess the best way to put it, the Samaritan woman. But uh, 
We see now that, uh, of course, it has a very significant place in history, and we'll look at it again in just a moment, or we'll see later on. But he says, therefore God gathered the tribes. Now, this is the first time in now probably three decades, because the last time we saw him was he was still splitting up the tribes back in chapter 18. And so there were seven more tribes that had to have their land. And that's the last time that they, they all met together at Shechem. So here we have now Joshua Older. And he said, called all the elders of Israel by their heads and judges and officers. And they presented themselves to God. And Joshua said to the people, this day, the Lord God of Israel, your fathers included Terah. And now he goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now he's going to go through a brief history again of what God has done for Israel. And as you read through this, you could underline the word I. Oh my, just under, and you'll see this over 20 times. Where well, I, but it's not I for Joshua, it's I for what God did. He's quoting, what, he's uh, kind of speaking the voice of God. And so we see that he says, uh, Abraham your father and the father of Nahor, and he goes all the way back to the, this, the, side of the other side of the river, talking about not only the Jordan, but of course uh, over all the way to uh, the Euphrates. In old times, they served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham. Of course, this isn't Joshua. This is the Lord speaking. Um, on the other side of the river and led them throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And then Isaac gave Jacob and Esau. And, the, and he goes, and Esau, he gave the mountains of Seir. So he's telling about the boundaries. And that's one reason I told you not to fight uh, uh, Edom or Seir is because uh, they're your relatives. And so, um, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And of course, we, that's a, uh, you know, he tells us about half the book of Genesis tells us about that story. But uh, of course, uh, just in a nutshell, uh, we know that uh, that's what they did. And he says, I, and I sent Moses and Aaron 400, 400 years later. And I plagued Egypt according to what I uh, did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. And remember back in chapter 7, I think, I brought you out that I may bring you in. And here it is again. Then I brought, uh, brought you out. Then I brought your, your, your fathers out of Egypt. And, came, you came into, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued you. Remember that one? Of course, that's Exodus chapter 14. Uh, the chariots, and uh, they, they, you cried out to the Lord. And so he's just hitting on the things that, uh, where he's just reminding of the dire straits and the great miracles that God did for Israel. And then uh, he goes on, he says, uh, then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, 40 years, in verse 8, and I brought you into, I brought you out that I may bring you in. We've seen that several times. I brought you out of the uh, the land of bondage so that I could bring you into the land of victory. And so uh, he says, I brought you out that I may bring you into the land of the Amorites. And you dwelled on the other side of the Jordan. And I gave them into your hand. And I destroyed them before you. Now it's interesting. You'll see that whenever he goes through um, the dangers that they went through, he, he talks about Balaam. Both Moses and Joshua talks about Balaam and Balak as one of their major adversaries. And of course, he's mentioned three times in the New Testament is about the way of Balaam. 
the doctrine of Balaam. And so here we see, then Balak, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of uh, Moab, arose to do war against Israel and sent and called Balaam. And so he goes through about what happened there. And of course, that was a major situation where thousands of, uh, of um, Israelites were killed because of their sin. Then you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, verse 11, next big battle. And the men of Jericho fought against the, the and of course, you destroyed them and the Hittites. And, but I delivered them into your hand. Uh, verse 12, and I sent a hornet. Now, that's kind of an interesting way of saying things. But I stirred it up. If uh, a hornet came in here tonight, you, would it stir up the crowd? Would it stir us up a little bit? Would it cause us not to be united? I don't think we'd want to go back and eat peaches and ice cream afterwards until we got rid of that hornet, right? It just wouldn't be nice. And so I sent a hornet uh, before you, which drove them out before you. So I caused those people to come out to fight you. They left their wall cities to come out and fight you, and then I destroyed them on the fields. Remember the long day? Remember all the things that he did? It was a lot easier to, for them all to unite together and come out to fight than to stay in the cities and have to take one of those, those cities one by one. So isn't it interesting how that God worked that out? And so he said, I did all those things. And he talks about the two kings and so forth. Verse 14, now therefore fear the Lord. Here he goes back to the same subject. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. That's your mission. And how many of we've done a study on the book of Deuteronomy where Moses said, fear the Lord and, and to follow him. And he says, in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods. Notice, put away. That implies they're already starting to go after the gods of, his, of, uh, of the Canaanites. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. But if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then this is the most famous passage in all of the book of Joshua. Choose you this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers serve them uh, that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in uh, whose land you dwell. But as far as me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Back several Christmases ago, I found little plaques and I gave them to all the people. And I still go to your houses and I see those up in your, you know, like Dan's got it on his door. Some of you have it in your, on your kitchen or whatever else. And what a blessing that is just to know, you choose you this day whom you'll serve, but as far as me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Those little reminders, you know, that uh, that's our pledge. And that's what uh, uh, we need to do. That's what the Lord says. Put them on your wall, put them on, you know, put them around, remind yourself of what God's done for you and what you've committed to, to, to the Lord. And so we see that this is, uh, he says, but as far as me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, that's a great leader, isn't it? Uh, folks, uh, I've been your leader, but I can't force you to do anything. I'm retiring. But as far as me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Isn't that a great way of going? And so we see that he, he says, uh, I realize some of you guys still have trouble, but I'm going to serve the Lord. Fellas, you going to follow me? So I can't force you anymore. I'm not your commander anymore. I'm out of here. But uh, are you going to serve God? And so he lays it on the line. And this is where he ends. And that's a great crescendo. And that's uh, what a way to end a, a message. But uh, you can imagine everybody just stands there going, is he demanding a decision right there? He's demanding something, isn't he? 
But then we see the follow-up and uh, what happens. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for the Lord our God is he who brought us out of... Notice now he's just uh, repeating what Joshua's told them. um, Out of the land of Egypt, uh, the house of bondage, and uh, shown us great signs and all the rest. Verse 18, And the Lord drove them out before us. And so they're copying what Moses or what Joshua said. Now that's what I want. I want my people and I want my children to repeat from their heart and make it part of their lives of things that I have said. Now, unfortunately, sometimes that's negatively. Well, sometimes I'll call up my, especially my teenage granddaughters, and I'll say something and they'll say, you're just like my dad. That's what he said. Well, where did he get it from? You know, that's one of those things. Why? Because, you know, now that's not what I always want to repeat, but I sure hope they get a lot of things about God from their daddy. Does that make sense? I don't want them to repeat certain things and other things I wish they'd forget, but but that's, uh, hey, they're like me. Um, My uh, daughter, um, again, I, boy, I mentioned my family too much, I guess, but, uh, she put on the internet the other day, I'm becoming just like my mother. And she mentioned something, you know. But uh, you want your followers to follow you, especially on the good things. And it's really nice. Now, the bad thing is when you see your faults in your kids, but it's great to see some of the things you taught them that are coming to fruition, even to a better and a greater extent in their lives than it was in your own. And so notice these people are repeating what he said. And the first couple of generations really tried. And we'll, later on, we'll see in, cha- jo- in uh, Joshua chapter 2, by, by about the third or fourth generation, it was fading. And every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. But here we see that these people were committed. In verse 19, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, uh, for he is holy, and he is jealous. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods. This is the big besetting sin that Israel had all the way up until the time of the Babylonian captivity is they kept serving other gods. All through their history, you see that they had trouble with other gods. That's the one thing about the Babylonian captivity that took care of that. Today, you won't find a graven image or anything around a synagogue. Uh, they will use rocks. <laughs> you know, I like that uh, movie about Schindler's, Schindler's List. I've watched, I guess, the television version of it or whatever. I, I don't know all the ratings or whatever, but it, it was very historical. But uh, when they came and uh, Schindler was, um, they were commemorating Schindler at the end of his life. They didn't make a statue of him on his grave. They came and put rocks on his grave. You know, like, so it's interesting, they, they will not make, but they, ha, they had to learn that from uh, the Babylon captivity. After that, they never, they, 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 God took care of that, at least in the Babylonian captivity. But they had trouble with it for the next uh, several hundred years. As they, you look at, uh, look at David, look at David, well, uh, look at Solomon. And to Solomon in his old age, uh, he married so many wives, but they led him off into serving the gods that he intermarried with. And so we see all the problems that were, were there. But um, he says, but now he's challenging them here. He says, he's saying to them, uh, you, you can't serve both. And there's some that he knows that they're still out there. And he's telling you can't do both. And they're saying, we're not going to do both. And yet some of them are. 
And he knows it. And he knows there's a weakness. In verse 21, so the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Great, okay, do it. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses, this is what you said. And it's on record now that you promised that you're gonna cho- you've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Great. And they did. Uh, we'll see that to, for a couple of generations, these people meant business. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods. Put away? Wait a minute, they're already serving them. So notice there's put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, uh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And then we see, then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and he set it up there by the oak that was in the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone is a witness to you, for it is for you heard all the words of the Lord, which he spake to us. This is the spot where we see the first revival in Scripture. If you go back to Genesis chapter 35, you'll see that after Simeon and Levi had really committed horrible sins and destroying the people of Shechem, the men of Shechem and just a real slaughter there, uh, and they were very afraid. Uh, now, I mean, they'd caused a lot of problems and all the people around them, they were still just a, a comparatively small tr- a tribe. And, um, and the Lord promised that I will put the fear of myself in your enemies. But then uh, Jacob got all of his kids together and he said, uh, uh, bring your, uh, change your clothes, wash yourselves, change your clothes, and bring all your foreign gods. That's a good uh, way of starting off, isn't it? You change your clothes, you know, get right, get cleansed. And it's interesting how he's talked about change your clothes. That means be different than the world. And so, uh, again, he says, and put away, and then we see back in chapter 35, verse 6, and we won't take time to turn to that now, but um, it says that, and Joshua buried those idols under the oak in Shechem, 400 and something years before. And we see that, that article there again, the oak. Was it the same oak? It'd be a 400 year oak, but uh, there again, it was a specific spot where God had dealt with, uh, with the people. And then again, and he of course brought revival to uh, the nation of Israel, preserved them. And now we see that they are established in the land and uh, that they have made a covenant with God that they're going to put away these foreign gods. And so we see that, uh, that it was under an oak in Shechem. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, the stone is a witness. Now, in closing, notice now it came to pass after these things, in verse 29, that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. One of, the, one of the tragic things of all the Old Testament, every major character in the Old Testament, almost all of them, we saw them die. You know, I don't think we saw Daniel die, but you know, uh, 
If, as you read the book of Genesis, every major character in the book of Genesis died. But isn't it what I said? If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. No matter how great Joshua was, he died. No matter how great Moses was, he died. But notice he died, the servant of the Lord, and they buried him within the border of the inheritance of Timoreth, of Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, on the south side of Mount Gaish. So he was buried about 10 miles south of Shechem. Um, and so we see that there's three different people that we see that, that uh, the Lord takes care of before he closes the book of Joshua. So first of all, Jehoshia, or Joshua, means God is salvation. And that's the, very, that's the Hebrew name for Jesus. And so we see he's our foundation. There's no other foundation given among men that, 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 that can be laid outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that um, he is our foundation. But then notice also that we see and Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua in verse uh, 30, 33, excuse me, 31. And he says, and who has known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then the bones of Joseph. Now he had died 430 years at least, or 400, almost 500 years by this time. Half a millennia. Boy, that'd be back like 50, back during the time of the pilgrims. But they still had his bones why would they have his bones? Because he was an Egyptian, he was probably embalmed, right? So he'd probably be a mummy. But um, they buried the bones of Joseph, which, was, uh, which the children of Israel had brought up out of the land. Remember, and he said uh, to his people, when he gave the great blessing to his children, he said, don't leave my bones in Egypt. And over a half millennia later, they were faithful. But God was faithful. He said, bury me in the land of promise. So here we see Joshua, or Joseph, means uh, Jehovah is, uh, Jehovah shall add, or Jehovah will bless. And did God bless. Took him 500 years for Joseph to realize his dream. But his bones were buried. Now, I think the, Joseph was up in heaven by that time, kind of smiling, don't you? God is faithful. So we see God, Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is faithful. He's ever faithful. And so it, might take, it doesn't take him 500 years. It's on his schedule. He doesn't get in a hurry. We have to wait, but he doesn't wait. He already knows what he's doing. But God promised, and if God promises, God will deliver and so here we see the faithfulness of God, even in that great servant of Joseph. And so we see the faithfulness of God. But then one other person is dying. And was one of the few priests that we see died. Now, we know Aaron did. But, uh, but we notice it says, um, And the bones of Joseph, the children of Israel, brought out of Egypt, and they buried them in Shechem, in the plot of ground, which Jacob had brought from the sons of Hamor, uh, notice, how they, they, how, notice how they kept records. They knew where these people, where their great-great-great-great-granddaddy lived and they were able to bury him, just like they said, um, in Shechem. Uh, for, um, and then it says in the last verse, verse 33, and Eliezer, 
And Eliezer means God is my help. But Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in the hill uh, uh, belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So notice Ephraim has got a lot of things going on here, uh, or a lot of central activities going on. But Phinehas means God is my help. Now, what was the one thing that happened when the high priest died? Remember the, uh, the cities of refuge. If you fled to one of them, you had to stay there to keep from the vengeance of the family until what happened? Till the high priest died. And then they were free to go. As long as the trial had been, and there was nobody, but legally you could not go after that person, especially if they were in. Well, if they were innocent, if they, they they would try a person, and if they found him guilty, they'd kick him out. But to keep uh, this vengeance that would go on in the Middle East, even to this day, the person could stay in the city of refuge until the high priest died, and then it would be on the person who wanted the vengeance, and they could be tried for murder. And so here we have freedom. Here they have, you know, they're free from the past. And what happened? When our high priest died, did he not set us free? When the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he ripped the, the veil in twain. And he, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And so we see our high priest now is in heaven. And so he is our help. He is our uh, the God of our help. So here we have the freedom of knowing the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And our sins have been forgiven. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. We sing little songs like that. And so we have freedom in Christ to serve Him. And so isn't it interesting how that uh, the Lord tells these things, but there's always a little hidden gem in just some of the most mundane things in Scripture, aren't they? I mean, Joe, uh, here were three men. So big deal, they died. But each one of them represented a different section or a different segment of the promises of God, even to us. Jesus is our salvation. God promises he'll always be faithful. And he gives us freedom to serve him. Free from the, free from the law, oh, happy condition. And so we see Jesus has died and there is remission. Why? Because what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. We thank you that, uh, our, that you are our foundation. There's no other foundation that any man can lay. And so we thank you that uh, we can serve you. And so Lord, as we would come before your presence tonight, We pray for that cleansing. We pray for that focus in our lives. Where we have told you before, Lord, we want to serve you. We have said, we have sung, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. So Lord, we pray that we will aggressively follow your word. May we not be content with just who we are. We want to continue to drive out the sins in our lives and the cultures and the things that would keep us from cleaving you and loving you with all of our hearts. So, Lord, we pray your blessings upon us, but, Lord, we pray also that for the power of the Holy Spirit to work through us, that we don't want to see the devil's crowd to victory. We want, we want to have victory over the de- devil's crowd by winning many of them to you. 
So Lord, give us Belvedere. Give us the surrounding areas, Lord. May people come to know you. And may the gospel go out aggressively as we would serve you and love you with all of our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.